Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, live from our studio here in North Minneapolis. Uh, this is Bright Lights. Uh, I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. Uh, Bright Lights is where each and every week we bring to you achievers and influencers uh, to discuss their successes in business, technology, finance, uh, and all other fields of human endeavors, uh, where we talk about the importance of families, where we share ideas on a variety of subjects. Uh, this week, our guest uh, is former Hennepin County Sheriff uh, Rich Stanick, and we're going to be talking about law enforcement, uh, which has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the issues as being perceived by the public. Uh, we're going to talk about the approaches to solving these issues. And we're just going to get into it. Uh, Rich uh, have quite a bit of experience as a patrol officer, a sheriff, uh, and a lot of other things in the field of law enforcement. And I don't have to say this to the people who live here, especially in the inner city. Uh, the law enforcement uh, has uh, been suffering lately. Crime is up everywhere. Uh, like I told you before, man, it's dangerous stopping at a, a traffic light, a stop sign nowadays, uh, the way people are driving. Uh, no one seems to be, uh, well, let me rephrase that. I need to be a little bit more exact. Uh, my journalism standards should be higher uh, than the rest of the journalists out there. Uh, uh, many people are not paying attention to traffic laws and things like that. And a couple of weeks ago, I think it was within the last week or so, to a couple of weeks or so, a nine-month-old was shot in a car. Uh, luckily, he survived. And this is on top of the three uh, three-year-olds being uh, shot. Uh, one of them died. Uh, in fact, the one that died, uh, her father went to school with my youngest son. And one of the ones that was injured, I know her grandfather. So... Uh, these things are not some type of political issues for me or some type of stuff you get on the grandstand about. Uh, these issues are about people's lives. And I tell people, regardless of what the issue is, I know someone whose life has been impacted by that. I have a face, more than one face, to all of these issues. So it's not just something where I can talk about to help me get ahead or where I make money or something like that. I'm seriously concerned about uh, saving people's lives. Uh, so uh, tonight, focus, like I say, it's, uh, it's on law enforcement. Now, about three years ago, uh, when uh, the Kappas, Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, I forgot, it might have been more than that, had their uh, province uh, council meeting here. Uh, part of the agenda was a town hall forum where we brought in a lot of young men and uh, young uh, African-American uh, teenagers and youth, uh, young adults, to have a town forum with the uh, law enforcement and from all over the metropolitan area, from the Metropolitan Council, uh, from the uh, Metro Transit, from the city of Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center, et cetera. And the bottom line was, uh, and many of them was African-American uh, uh, officers. And the bottom line was we was getting together to talk about the, the issue and the approach to it. And they were all favorable uh, uh, 
oh boy, gung ho uh, to solve that issue. And I came away with two, two major concerns uh, uh, out of that uh, town hall uh, forum. One is, I just recall the law law enforcement officer saying uh, they wanted people to be respectful of them. And, you know, I'm like, wow, uh, people have bad days. I mean, you can stop people and they're just having a bad day and they might not be respectful. So uh, I'm concerned that a person has to be respectful uh, uh, as risk uh, something very bad happening to them. I expect for the law enforcement uh, as professionals to able to be able to deal with disrespectful people uh, without something bad happening. I don't know. That's just me. Uh, but the second thing that concerned me, and the reason I didn't have much confidence in it, uh, every last one of those officers, and keep in mind, they were on our side. Uh, every last one of them pointed out the importance of making sure both hands are seen at all time uh, by these uh, officers. And I'm like, wow, that should be a public relations campaign nationally pointing that out. They need to see both of your hands at the same time. And when I look at this issue, once again, it's a personal issue to me because uh, I raised two sons in the inner city and I had to talk to them about how to deal with uh, law enforcement and other things. And I'm not going to get into some of the other ones, but there's basic things you have to do. And look, what I say to uh, said to my son, and I deal with a lot of youth, and what I say to them, look, you have to accept some responsibility and accountability yourself. I think the community have to accept some responsibility and accountability. And what I tell them, because I love them, I'm not concerned about all these issues about politics and, and right and wrong and Black Lives Matter crusades. And I'm, my number one concern is the life of my sons. And because that is not my number one uh, concern, uh, what I say to them, look, three things. Don't break the law, no matter how difficult it is, and it can be difficult sometimes. Do not resist arrest and make sure both of your hands are seen at all times. And I think uh, if we look at accountability across the board, we start accepting accountability that we will see a reduction in some of these incidents. Now, what we're doing right now, and I'm going to bring on our guest here shortly. What we're doing right now, uh, we are simplifying a very complex issue. And I'm very upfront about this. And this is a lot of issues. As long as we think that it's all about race, that that's the number one factor, that's the only factor, we won't solve these issues, people. And I'm concerned about people's lives. There's a lot of other things involved here. And we need to really broaden it, uh, our, our perspective of the problem. And I'll just say that, look, uh, my background is engineering. And I'm used to a method methodology uh, in solving problems. And I think the problem with a lot of these issues is that it's a lot of uh, depends on emotions and opinion. And we tend to grab the first potential answer we see and run with it. Uh, but we're going to talk some more about that as we go along with my guests here tonight. Uh, once again, uh, if you want to support this program, go out to LaceyJohnson.com. Uh, you will see uh, some buttons where you can donate and support what we're trying to do here. We're trying to build some things here where we really have open discussion that actually leads to solutions. So having said that, uh, we're going to talk about law enforcement. We're going to talk about law enforcement reform today. 
And my guest is former police officer, former House member, former Hennepin County Sheriff, uh, Rich Stanick. Uh, welcome, uh, Rich, to Bright Lights. Glad to have you here. Uh, good evening. I should point out to our audience, uh, keeping it 100, I met Rich about four years ago, I think, at a community meeting in the North Loop. We hit it off pretty good, and we've been basically knowing each other and friends ever since, and I'm glad to have him on the program. So uh, thank you, Rich, for coming in. Uh, let's get to it. Uh, first of all, Rich, well, welcome, first of all. Uh, tell yeah, us a little thank bit. Thank you. I, you know what? I, I really appreciate you having conversations like this with your listeners. They are so important can't underestimate uh, the value of having honest, candid, transparent discussion, no matter where you fall on the scale. Uh, you can't go wrong when you talk about real things. I agree with you there. And, you know, hopefully most of us will respect each other, even if we disagree. And these type of dialogues are so important, I think. And I'm out here to give a different a way of looking at things because the way we've been looking at things for the past 40 or 50 years have not led to any solutions. As a matter of fact, it's made things worse. So I'm tired of it. And when I think of those little kids, that could have been my grandson. So thank you, Rich, for being on. Uh, before we get started here, I like for each of my guests to give a little background on themselves, where they're from, uh, the influences growing up, uh, which may could have predicted the profession you chose, those type of things, family type of things, because uh, after all, that's more important uh, than all this other things that we talk about sometimes. Well, that's right, and I appreciate that. Let me just tell you in full disclosure, uh, just like you had said, I met you about four years ago, maybe a little bit longer uh, now, uh, but it was Halloween night. It was a few days before the election, October 31. It was about uh, 7.30 or so. I met you down to North Loop. We're at uh, a condo association down in their meeting room. I'd been hearing a lot of chatter about this guy, Lacey Johnson, that was running for elected office. I wanted a chance to meet him, and sure enough, I get a chance to meet him that night. And I was not disappointed. wasn't disappointed by who you were, what you said, how you conducted yourself, and really how you connected with those Minneapolis uh, residents. And from there... You know, honestly, uh, I've been a fan, and I'm happy to uh, be here tonight. As far as my background, Lacey, uh, pretty simple, right? I was born and raised in Minneapolis, in northeast Minneapolis, and I spend a better part of my days there still. I'm 59 and a half years old. <laughs> you had asked me earlier. I'm 59 and a half. And, uh, you know, I lived in the city for the first 30-plus uh, years, um, and then I moved out to... Uh, what is, I guess, a third ring suburb out here to Maple Grove. You know, that was a choice I made uh, due to my wife's uh, employment. And as we started to have kids, and uh, we had to find a place that was kind of between both of our uh, employers. Uh, but you already know my background in brief. Uh, born and raised in Northeast Minneapolis. One of the strongest influences on me, Lacey, was a seventh grade Catholic nun named Sister Benita. And uh, Sister Benita now is 90, maybe 91 years old. She calls me about three times a week. I'm not shy about this because what good Catholic kid doesn't want to talk about their seventh grade nun? She calls me three times a week just to check in on me, see how I'm doing. It doesn't matter whether I'm having a good day, a bad day, any kind of day in between. It's never bad when you talk to a 90-year-old 
none. And she keeps me uh, balanced and centered, and I know you can appreciate that. I started out my career uh, with Minneapolis Police. You know, I started working about late uh, 1983. I was assigned over the north side of Minneapolis as a patrol officer for the first you know, six, seven, eight years of my uh, my career. Eventually got promoted to detective, went downtown, worked sex crimes, which are horrific in and of themselves. Ended up working uh, robbery and homicide and, and other things. Got promoted again to lieutenant, ended back up on the north side of Minneapolis, a shift of about 40 or so patrol officers, a lot different today uh, than it was back then. Uh, 40 patrol officers, four sergeants versus what they've got out on the street today. Uh, just a mere pittance compared to what we had back in, you know, the mid 80s or so. And I had a chance to go back down, do investigations with the city of Minneapolis. I was a captain. I ran criminal investigations, uh, robbery, homicide, gangs, narcotics sex crimes, uh, had 100 plus detectives that worked for us, and they worked really hard. Uh, but nonetheless, I ended up as a precinct commander in the east side of Minneapolis, what is now the second precinct, which is great because I was born and raised there, but that created its own problems because I knew everybody, knew their you know, first and second generation families, and it was a good fit. I think if you're going to have a, a precinct commander, like you've got Charlie Adams over there now, and you want somebody who can connect with the community itself. And I was able to do that. In between all that, uh, one day somebody said, well, why don't you run for political office? And I thought, well, who makes all these laws that affect us as cops? Uh, and so I ran for the Minnesota legislature. Never thought I'd get elected, but I got elected five times. I served in the Minnesota House representing Maple Grove, Plymouth, Osseo, and uh, chaired the Public Safety Policy and Finance Committees. Uh, from there, I went to work for uh, Governor Palente as Commissioner of Public Safety and Director of Homeland Security for a couple of years. But I, I went back to Minneapolis to wrap up my law enforcement career, which was near and dear to me. And then in uh, 2006, I ran for Sheriff of Hennepin County. I was elected uh, three times before I retired out in 2019. And now I live the good life. I do consulting work all over the country with law enforcement agencies, local businesses, community groups, serve in a number of nonprofits. I really haven't gone far, maybe 18 miles out of the city of Minneapolis, but I go back there every day and my friends like you uh, keep in contact with. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, uh, well, you mentioned uh, being part of the law enforcement team here in Minneapolis. I think you started in 1986 as a patrol officer. Where I'm going to, uh, Minneapolis had that one year where it was known as Murderapolis. That might have been 89. I've forgotten what year that was. Do you remember that year? And, uh, 1995. And, I 19, do. 1995. Oh, oh, I was that. Watch that night. Okay. And what did, what did we. And how did we explain that uh, Minneapolis? Because when I first moved to Minneapolis, and I have to share the. We, we never had any murders. I mean, as a matter of fact, I remember once there was a murder at a blues club called the Blue Notes on Lindale and right off mm -hmm. of Plymouth. And I just remember it struck me so much. And I remember when I was going to the U, I'd fly uh, into New Orleans and spend the night in New Orleans and fly on to my hometown. And I always would turn on the news and I would see all these killings and all this crime and violence. And I was like, boy, we don't have that issue in Minneapolis, and we've come full circle here. But where I'm getting to on this, Rich, uh, what caused that original surge 
back in those days as you look back on it and has anything changed since then you know the one thing i always hear you talk about is this is not a, a simplistic issue this is a complex problem there were a number of things that i think and my law enforcement colleagues believe caused what was 1995 and uh, the, the mantra of murderopolis with 97 homicides the highest number ever in minneapolis and if we continue on the current pace here in 2021 that'll be uh that'll just be a shadow because we will surpass it come october november december but you know i would say we got hit hard in minneapolis back in the uh, uh the late 80s and early 90s with crack cocaine street gangs there was a lack of political will and political leadership willing to deal with it um and when they did it was too little too late by that time law enforcement was overwhelmed with day-to-day -day, uh things that were happening if staffing is what staffing is it's never been overstaffed it's always been understaffed and they asked the cops to do a lot and society asks cops and law enforcement officers to do all kinds of things when they can't find anybody else to do it or someone else gets tired of doing it that's why we're the uh, opioid counselors that's why we're the mental health professionals that's why we're the guys the men and women you call when you gotta light the pilot light can't find your cat your kids missing burglary and robbery graffiti whatever it might be you call 911 and who comes um, and that's not right. exactly what it was supposed to uh, be right right well you know uh and i try to be careful here but i have to because i'm about solving these issues and i was talking to a community long time uh civil rights leader here in the twin cities and who's been around the block a few times in fact i hope you don't mind me mentioning his name uh spike moss as a matter of fact and he correctly pointed out and he's he indicated to me that a lot of people in leadership are burying their heads on this issue but we had a lot of uh, uh people migrate here from other states and other cities and from tough tough neighborhoods and a lot of that was bringing that culture with them and people seem to be afraid uh, to acknowledge that. And a lot of these statistics that you saw uh, go down here uh, was because of the uh, migration. Now, I'm not saying that in a negative way because, you know, as a Christian, I think God sent people your way for you to help them. Uh, but I, I remember him pointing that out distinctively. And I just remember when I came here, every person that I met who moved here, they came to work or go to college or both. And that all of a sudden that started changing and I started meeting some of those people. So we need to acknowledge that as as part of the issue also. Uh, so you're thinking that this year, and if I heard you correctly, and I don't have the data in front of me, I'm a data guy, uh, 97 murders back in 1995 was the peak amount. And of course, with the current uh, state of law enforcement here in the Twin Cities, that's our leaders just uh, they just blew all, all over the place. Uh, we might exceed that number uh, this year. Uh, you, you expect for us to exceed it maybe even by October and November. Am I uh, interpreting that correctly, uh, Rich? You are. I, I really want to answer that question, but I also want to take the uh, point of personal privilege. You brought up Spike Moss. <laughs> uh, Spike has been a, a colleague, an ally, a friend, for a lot of years. Spike is one of those guys that's out there every single day. He, Ron Edwards, and Jerry McAfee, love him, hate him, despise him. 
Uh, they're out there every single day trying to do the right thing, using the resources. But Spike always speaks his mind. He's a very articulate guy. I wish more people could hear the message that he has for the people of Minneapolis and that he takes elected officials to task. It doesn't matter whether you're the sheriff, the commissioner of public safety, uh, a captain, a lieutenant. He never hesitated to take me to task. I heard what he said. And 99% of the time, he was right. And you're right to, to mention him. And I hope he's around for a long time because he's had a great influence on what happens here in the city of Minneapolis. Yeah. As far as, uh, Lacey, as far as the crime issue and, you know, murder, I, you know, yeah, I'm a data-driven guy as well, but I can read the tea leaves. And when I see 50-plus murders already and it's only July 14th or so, you know, we're not even uh, three-fourths of the way through the year. Um, and we're in the hot summer, and every weekend we seem to have a murder or two or three. We see young kids being shot, sometimes uh, fatally. K.G. Wilson, you talked about his, you know, his three-year-old niece, uh, tragic as it was, the six-year-old, the nine-year-old. Um, you know, even the media doesn't know what to call it anymore. They call it... Uh, errant rounds or, um, you know, uh, accidental discharges. No, when you fire a bullet, you intend to shoot at what you're shooting at. Simple as that. And it doesn't bring back that human life. But I just don't, you know, I believe that by November, maybe as early as October, uh, you're going to see us surpass that number. I hope to God we don't, uh, but I'm a realist and I've been around a long time. And I challenge the city of Minneapolis and their elected officials prove me wrong. I'd love to be proved wrong on this, that we're not going to break that record of 97 homicides. That is not something to brag about. That is shameful. Yeah. Uh, that's, those are all good points. Now, as a professional, and we're going to get into some tough areas here now. As a professional, uh, when you watch the George Floyd video for the first time, uh, share with me and our audience, some of the things that crossed your mind, maybe the top two or three things that crossed your mind as you was watching that video for the first time. You know, I watched it uh, probably like a lot of your listeners the morning after it happened, right? 12 hours later, it was plastered across uh, YouTube, TV, you name it. I watched it once, twice, three times. I, like you and many others, shook their head and said, how could this be, how could this be happening? How we watched live, um, you know, the death of the young man. I had a chance to meet uh, George Floyd a number of times in his uh, short life. He was very active out in the community. And uh, as the sheriff of the county, you know, I had a chance to, uh, to run into folks. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any, uh, I, didn't, I don't have anything bad to say about uh, about the guy but i will say that you know watching that video uh was shocking um you can you know i i i understand some parts of what happened because of my law enforcement background but never at the end of the day does it justify uh what happened at the conclusion of the video or the outcome in other words the means doesn't justify the end uh there's no way and rightfully so rightfully so hennepin county courts uh, held him accountable and, you know, he was, he was convicted. I don't think you're going to find 
a chief law enforcement officer, those being chiefs or sheriffs anywhere in this country that would tell you anything different. That is not the standard we set for our officers. But having said that, we hire from the human race. Uh, people make mistakes. Cops make mistakes. Politicians make mistakes. I bet even Lacey makes a mistake once in a while. Ah, no, but have a You take accountability for your actions. I know, but you do. <laughs> we take accountability for our actions, right? I mean, yes, yes, we that's do. just the way it is. And he was held accountable for what he did, and rightfully so. So when you were an officer, I'm assuming that one of your number one goal, if not the number one goal, no, it's the no, your number one goal, as I, I watched The Untouchables and Sean Connery's character, the number one goal <laughs> is to make it home alive at the end of your shift. Now, I'm assuming that that's a basic type of principle. And uh, you are, there's some dangerous people out there. And if my number one goal was to make it home alive uh, at the end of my shift, I would always err on the side of protecting my life. Is that some of what's going on out there in the field uh, as you see it? Well, I think you were right earlier. I, I heard you at the beginning, or maybe we were talking before the show began here about hands kill. And you've had these conversations with your sons and uh, many, many folks have. I have had them with my son and my daughter about keeping their hands in plain sight. Don't make overt moves. If law enforcement gives you uh, an order, comply. You can, you can disagree with it. You can argue about it afterwards. Comply at the time um, and, uh, and let, things, let things play out. A lot of us do things we don't want to do. And that's just, that's just the way it is. But, you know, law enforcement officers, my wife always wanted me to come home at the end of my shift. I put in 37 years. Uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't easy. I had some good days. I had some really bad days. I went to dozens and dozens and dozens of colleagues' funerals across the metro and across Minnesota who didn't come home at the end of this shift for whatever reason. And that's not an easy thing to reconcile, but by no means does it give law enforcement officers uh, the right to be above the law, to act outside of the law. The laws are what are the governing rules and policies that society put in place for us to enforce. And, you know, if we can't do that, then, then what good are we to begin with, honestly? And I think that's part of the reconciliation, part of the, part of the reform, part of the really tough discussions that people are having now is about, well, you know, where, where does this fall? But there's a lot of things in play here. Like you said, it is not a simplistic issue. It is a complex problem. It's going to take us a long time to work our way through this. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. Uh, and, you know, when we look back on the whole uh, issues of violence and destruction here that followed that incident, uh, when we look at some of the decisions and the attitudes of our leadership, when you take a look at that, uh, how do you, in your analysis of how leadership handled the situation, uh, what are some of the conclusions that you came to? Did they handle it well? Uh, was there, and, and that's kind of like a softball, actually, Rich, but uh, we know they didn't handle it well. So tell me how bad did they handle it, in your opinion, uh, Rich? 
You know, again, I, I've been a police officer for 37 years and the vast majority of my career outside of the first six years or so, I was a supervisor. And you have to rely on your first line supervisors. If you don't have good first line supervisors, you're nowhere. When I was sheriff of the county, we hired really good people. We trained them to a very high degree because we didn't want to have to go back and redo it. We didn't want to have to second guess. We didn't want something tragic like Muhammad Noor or Derek Chauvin or something else happening. There's enough of the bad stuff out there to deal with without being part of the problem and creating it ourselves. I would say, you know, leadership, there were a lot of failures. This was an epic failure in leadership, command and control, and coordination amongst law enforcement agencies that followed the tragic death of George Floyd for those, certainly those first six days, and then for the weeks and months following, then reiterated again when, you know, uh, 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 Mr. Wright was killed up in Brooklyn Center, um, again, probably over on uh, Lake Street just a few weeks ago. And the one thing I know for sure, it's gonna happen again, polarizing incidents Critical incidents happen in this community every single day. It's not, it's not how you handle it initially, it's how you handle the rebound of it because mm -hmm. the community has no faith and no trust in their police, you know, which is problematic. And people say, well, how do you get that faith and trust back? How do you, how do you rebuild this? I just spent 37 years uh, you know, working the street, uh, taking young kids out of North Minneapolis, canoeing up in the boundary waters with cops, sponsoring youth athletic leagues, uh, working community engagement with immigrant communities, helping them understand what, what it is and what they should know about the criminal justice system and all that for not. And, but I believe, I believe there'll be a rebound, but it's gonna be, it's gonna be a while. This is not something that uh, Minneapolis or the metro area or the state of Minnesota is going to come back from anytime soon. In the meantime, well, what do you do? Um, you know, local elected officials, political leaders, the rhetoric, they got to be careful about what they say. Yeah. Defund the police. Oh, that's a really easy thing to say. And what does it mean at the end of the day? Does that mean you're not going to, you're not going to make me the opioid czar so I don't have to deal with everybody who comes into the jail and you know, give them naloxone and other uh, other stuff to get them unaddicted? Does that mean you're going to give me more resources to deal with those who suffer from mental illness and homelessness and everything in between? And bring it on. Defund me all day long if you're going to help me with those issues and those problems. That's what defund means to me. Uh, shift that money around and get the right people out there doing what they're supposed to be doing. Quit dumping it back on the police to do. I have a very it's probably hard. One you wanted to know, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to know. Uh, Don't get I me have... wound up, Lacey. <laughs> oh well, we all got these soapboxes, and I have to <laughs> resist the temptation myself. Uh, I have a hardcore uh, Democrat friend, and I have quite a few of those uh, who call that defund the police exact idea exactly what it is. Stupid, and that was I'm quoting him. Uh, this hardcore Democrat on that one. Uh, and, you know, before we move on, uh, I want to re reiterate one more time what I'm hearing from the black police officers and the ones who really want to make sure that people are not being treated unfairly. Look, make sure 
they see both of your hands all the time. If you want to stay away from this, they got to see both of your hands all the time. And they reiterated that to me. And I really think that that should be a national campaign on that. Of course, in this toxic political environment, uh, versus there's going to be a campaign on the other side that come out and say you're blaming the victim and all of that because they see it as a, a platform they can get on and, and, and it helped their cause. But see, I'm not dealing with a cause here. I'm dealing with people's lives here. And that's what I'm concerned about. And uh, I want people out there to know, uh, and, and the way they put it, unless they see both of your hands at the same time, you're liable to get shot. And that's the way the black police officer did it. I, I should point out, you mentioned the media also. Boy, you can't return. You can't depend on them to give you an accurate picture of anything, and that's why I, I normally bypass them. Uh, right after the George Floyd incident happened, I went and talked to my friends in the Minneapolis Police Department, okay. and it's amazing. You get a totally different picture when you talk to people behind the scene versus what you hear on TV. Now, I'll leave it at that for now. We'll come back and and and, and revisit that. So. We have a situation, and we've talked about leadership, uh, where leaders are they're convicting the guy, the man, before we go to court. I don't know whatever happened to uh, you're innocent until proven guilty and all that kind of stuff. I guess all a lot of principles that I grew up with, I'm finding the rich that going out the window nowadays. We had uh, Maxine Waters coming in, basically saying you got to string this guy up. We really had, uh, we really had a lynch mob in a lot of ways from the politicians side of it. Uh, what should they have done different? I'm assuming you're along with me that they should, probably should have kept their mouth fast and, and uh, respected the process in the system. Am I correct in uh, thinking that you kind of thought yeah. they went over, overboard with some of their pretrial comments and the $27 million pretrial stuff? Uh, how do you feel about all of that, Rich? Everybody wants to be popular. Maxine Waters wants to be popular. Ella Sharpton wants to be popular. Ben Crump wants to be popular. Uh, Keith Ellison wants to be popular. And let him be popular. It doesn't mean it's the right thing. Um, look, with this, this country was, was born on <laughs> uh, protecting civil liberties and, and rights of individuals. Uh, First Amendment is alive and well. Uh, you also have the Fourth Amendment. Uh, people talk about the Second Amendment. And we've got a lot of different things uh, going on here. Um, you know, folks can take the Fifth Amendment when they go to court if they don't want to testify because of something incriminating. It doesn't doesn't mean anything other than, hey, thank you for being an American. And as long as you're in this country, no matter how you got here, what your status is, you're entitled to those constitutional rights. That's the way it is. Derek Chauvin was entitled to his rights. He chose not to testify. He chose a jury trial, um, you know, and he's accountable for his, his actions. But like I said, you know, everybody wants to be popular. You know, saying the right thing doesn't make you popular. It certainly doesn't make you right. Uh, uh, more often than not, people look at you and go, ha, yeah, well, okay, heard that, been there, done that, you know, move on. And I thought the same thing when I heard some of these folks uh, talking ad nauseum. They might as well just had little cartoon characters out there. And that would have been just fine. Would have been just fine. Yeah, well, you know, 
politics and uh, popularity contests go together. And that's why I think it's yep. such a challenge to solve a lot of these complex issues. Uh, sometimes you got to take stance that's not popular uh, to get them solved. But then again, you risk run the risk of losing the election and, and things like that. And that's why I just, when you give, when you take into consideration human nature and the way politics work, uh, issues like police reform, uh, inadequate housing, tough issues, it's hard to solve those. Cause, and, and the interesting thing about it, and my, uh, once again, my young son pointed this out to me and I can always learn from my kids also. He was like, dad, people care more about how you make them feel than what you do for them. True. And I think that's a lot of the challenges that we have. And it takes a lot of courage uh, to stand up and say something that's unpopular, uh, even though it's the right thing. So, but let's keep working this thing because we got to solve these issues. And in order to solve them, some people are going to have to take uh, unpopular position. And I just want to let the people out there know that I'm one of those people who are willing to take uh, unpopular stance to see can we get to the solutions to some of these issues. Uh, okay, you so know, I appreciate that, Lacey, yeah. but I, I want to say one thing, just one quick thing. Oh, please. You know, it time. is uh, j j just look how much this has changed. You know, 10 years ago, you would never thought about going out to Lacey's house to protest to affect his neighbors and his family. Uh, they were off limits. You didn't do that, but it doesn't seem to matter to this state representative in St. Paul who goes out to Hugo to protest and then get caught up in this, you know, quid pro quo kind of thing. Uh, you know, when did, when, when did we lose the decency of, you know, mutually respecting each other's opinions for what they are opinions. And that is, that is the sad thing about politics yeah. today, honestly, the sad thing. Well, and I, I try to point out to a lot of people that's doing those type of things. I mean, throwing water on people in, in restaurants and protesting in people's homes. It, it's just crazy. And we were talking earlier, I saw some uh, BLM protesters actually attack a middle-aged black couple. And they just disrespected the woman. And they, I'm, I'm like, people, come on. I mean, in, in fact, that's a certain amount of zealousness and self-righteousness about that, that I just don't like. In fact, and I, I, I'll change something, get off my soapbox. Uh, I was watching the uh, Senator McCarthy hearings on communism and uh, how it impacted some of the entertainers and things back. And what I'm seeing today is really reminding me of McCarthyism. And it's just on the other side, the way they figure they can treat people any kind of way. Uh, every time you look up, they're demanding someone lose their jobs. Uh, there's this cancel culture. There's this docking of people. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And these are from the people who say that they're the good people and they're in the right. And when you look at what they're doing, but once again, I, I, I tell people also, uh, I'm not surprised because the people who are doing this, the side that's doing this, it's very seldom you hear them mention God or anything that's spiritual or decent or right. Uh, and uh, we're dealing with a lot of people who really don't believe in God and spirituality and stuff and anything. The ends justify the means. And, you know, my favorite one is uh, looting is just another form of reparation. I mean, I mean, how can anybody, I mean, and, and that's what we're dealing with. 
And when you look at the, once again, I always say when you look at the education system, uh, you look at the media, you look at pop culture, you look at all of that, uh, they're being indoctrinated to think this way. And we got a big battle on our hands. So uh, that's my soapbox moment. Uh, I'll get off of it. Uh, so what do we, how do, how do we go forward from here? We, we, we got, I understand that uh, the chief had asked for uh, 1,200 officers. I think we were down last time I heard to 500. Uh, I think the businesses downtown, they're just really hurting. Uh, some of them will never come back. Uh, even the ones that's been around for a while and they were in pretty good shape and they own their own buildings and things, they're struggling. Rich, where do we go from here? How long it's going to take? You touched on it briefly. Uh, how do we get back to, uh, well, maybe we'd never get back, but how do we at least get back close to where we were, if not on even ground where, you know, we had a thriving downtown. Uh, we had a great economic uh, system going here in the Twin Cities. Uh, people, for the most part, got along. Uh, we, yeah, we had issue with the police, and there's always going to be some issues. But we basically uh, let them do that job. How do we get, how do we get back to even ground or close to even ground on some of these issues, Rich? In your opinion? Well, you're down to about <clears throat> 690 or so police officers, so you're already down 250 from where they were when they were trying to keep even. Now it's 15, 16 months later, and you're way down in the hole. So that 250 isn't even close to catching up. So you got to get up to 1,200. Uh, you can't possibly hire that many <laughs> uh, folks coming into the system. You know, if you hire 75 a year, you'd be doing really, really good for a large agency like Minneapolis Police. So do the math. It's going to take several years. But it's not just the police department. You know, the police department have reforms to make. There's been a number of proposals. They've done some things or some more things they are working on. Um, uh, the morale probably, I would venture to say, uh, probably at an all-time low. You know, why do they want to go out and do their jobs if their jobs are governed by people who can't decide what their job should be, quite honestly? Those elected leaders, those Minneapolis City Council members, the state legislators, the governor, and others, yeah, they're getting mixed messages across the board and they're not getting the support they need to be able to do. I mean, if you come across a, a, a carjacking, a car that was stolen and you, you pursue that vehicle and that vehicle ends up in a crash and it kills someone else, is that your fault? Um, you know, where's the responsibility with all this? It is not great what happened in these things. Like I said, these polarizing incidents happen day in and day out, but hey, this is the real world. This is policing 24 seven. Uh, bad things happen. Policing is not a pretty business. Every time there's an arrest, someone's going to get uh, hurt, if not their feelings and maybe physically or both. Uh, it's just the way it is. No cop goes to work at the beginning of their shift, hoping that they're gonna get in a shootout and have to kill somebody. But every cop hopes that they're gonna be coming home at the end of this shift to give their you know significant other spouse uh, a kiss goodnight or say hi to their kids or mom or dad or or brother and sister and quite honestly Lacey I mean we hire from the human race cops are not uh, perfect they are imperfect in a lot of different ways they're shaped and trained uh, according to how we do it both the chiefs and the sheriffs and the leadership for the city the county the state 
Uh, and even federally, you know, you hear rhetoric coming out of the White House. Uh, it doesn't matter which president it is. Um, you've got you've to be able to support the men and women who support you. You know, I belong to an organization called the Minnesota 100 Club, and I'm just going to I'm just going to break from it. But the Minnesota 100 Club was a group formed 49 years ago when a police officer or firefighter is killed or critically injured in the line of duty. This group of men and women uh, from across the metro area get together and they will give a $25,000 reward uh, to the surviving family so that they can make ends meet for the six months until any other benefits might come because when a cop or firefighter is killed in the line of duty, their paycheck comes to an end at the end of that shift. And, you know, like a lot of families, they're just like everybody else. Mortgage payment, car payment, food on the table, daycare. You know, what do you do? And so there are a lot of great people out here that support uh, law enforcement. And sometimes they're a little more shy than others to step up. But bullying and intimidation of those good people uh, is not the right way to go. And I applaud you for a show like this, a podcast where you say the truth and you stand by the truth and you believe in faith and family and uh, those organizational values that are so precious to how we raise our kids in our society today. Uh, thanks for pointing that out. Faith and family is important. Uh, I talk about uh, economic development and, and generational wealth, putting money in people's pocket and don't ever mm -hmm. underestimate the value of a quality education which Minnesota is horrible at and getting worse as each year go by. And I don't see any light at the end of that tongue. Uh, you talked about uh, police, law enforcement officer. What amazes me, Rick, that anybody would want to be a police officer, a law, law enforcement officer nowadays. Because if I'm sitting there, and I know I wouldn't be one, uh, I'm thinking, you know what? If someone got a cell phone video of me doing my job, I might just end up in prison for 10 to 20 years or so. And uh, and so I would be very hesitant. And it, and, and that's so much, uh, what I should say. Well, let me, I'll come at this. There's so much a lack of methodology and data and, and things like that in looking at these problems and analyzing them. Uh, I don't think we're going to ever uh, get a... Uh, good plan to solve them. Uh, I told so I was telling someone earlier, we spent 25% of our time just analyzing the problem, gathering data. Uh, the first thing I did uh, after the shooting, uh, I, I went out and gathered some data, and you might be aware of this, and I shared this with one of my Democrat friends, is that uh, between 2008 and 2019, there was over 4 million encounters between law enforcement and the people here in Minneapolis. And out of that over 4 million, there was like, I think 11 killings and I didn't break down the race on that. I saw it somewhere. And when I did the math on that, that gave me like 0.0012%. And uh, I'm wondering, do we realize that? I did some digging on uh, unarmed uh, citizens being killed by the police. And I was surprised to find that on, in any given year, uh, twice as many uh, whites are killed, unarmed whites are killed by police as blacks. And so I'm saying, if we're really gonna understand this issue, we cannot just simplify it. 
we, we really got to understand the complexity and intricacies of this. And the reason I'm standing up with the courage to say this, because once again, I'm tired of people getting killed by the police. And as long as we keep this simple kind of solution, if the police just change, all this will go away. We're going to keep getting people killed. And I don't want that to happen. And I think we need to really broaden this discussion and go about it a little bit more uh, scientifically and methodolog methodologically. I made that word. That's a tough one uh, before, uh, to solve these things. Uh, so what uh, when we look at police reform, when you think of police reform, and this is what I struggle with. Once again, I talk a lot to my uh, Democrat friends. I don't understand what the goal is. And I'm used to goals say uh, with numbers and stuff, and and it's the goal to make sure that there's no unarmed citizen ever killed. It's the goal to make sure there's no black unarmed citizen ever killed. What what goal? What's a realistic goal for us to shoot for with police reform? Because I have not heard anyone talk to me about what what we're trying to accomplish here. And keep in mind, I was an IT project manager, and we knew when we were done. Uh, solving a problem. So I'm trying to figure out when are we, and, and somebody's going to argue we're never done, but go, what are we trying to achieve here, Rich, in your mind? What's what's what, what's a practical, reasonable, feasible goal for us to achieve in all of this uh, as far as you look at it and you see it? Well, there's a couple of things I know that, uh, that are true. One, perception is reality if you believe it, right? It doesn't matter what yeah. It doesn't matter what it is or isn't it. If it's perception and you believe it, it's reality to the individual who sees it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think in a lot of respects, that's kind of where that's kind of where this is at. When I when people talk to me about police reform, well, of course, I agree. Who doesn't agree with police reform or post office reform or Burger King reform or wherever it might be? But I mean, let's 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 talk real for a minute. You can have two dozen proposals, but you get to have proposals that are well-balanced, well-meaning, that continue to protect society at the same time encourages those slight changes. I told you, when they talk about defund or reform, if they want to say, look, uh, you know, 50% of the people that are brought to the Hennepin County Jail every year, and for a while there, I was, we were bringing 40,000 people a year into the front doors of the jail, when people I was bringing in, it was people bringing, being brought in by Minneapolis police and the suburban police departments and the, the state patrol, but, but we had a job to do. And so we ran the jail, but half those people that came in were addicted to one thing or another, not even including alcohol. Another half of them uh, suffered from treated or untreated mental illness. And it would take them months and months and months to get through the criminal justice system. Uh, and a lot of times, they would come for shoplifting, vagrancy, some low-level misdemeanor crime that they shouldn't have been in jail to begin with, and they would sit in jail longer because of their mental illness than the underlying crime that got them to jail to begin with. And you go, what's wrong with this system? There are a lot of smart people out there. We put tens and tens of millions, if not billions of dollars into it. Why can't they figure out a solution other than calling 911, having the cops come and say, ah, I'm sorry, but you know, you're hanging out in front of Target on 7th, 8th, 9th and Nicollet and you know, they don't want you here. So therefore, what are you gonna do with them? Off to jail they go. You know, from, 2000, from 2006 until 2018, 
I served as sheriff for this county a 12 year span. The violent crime in this county went down 38%. And when I talk about violent crime, Lacey, I was talking about rape, robbery, murder, aggravated assault, drive-by shootings. The four worst of the worst, we went down by 38%. Tens of thousands less victims of crime. What changed in 2018 into 2021 where crime has skyrocketed upwards? What's, what's, what's the dynamics that have changed? Was it a, a change in elected leadership? Was it rhetoric out of these elected officials? Was it the cops said, hey, you know, we just, we're not gonna do our jobs anymore? And why did they all decide to retire at the same time? Because they were bored or they wanted to go fishing together? I mean, come on, there, there were real reasons uh, and answers to these problems. None of them simplistic though, as we pointed out. Yeah. Well, you mentioned leadership and some of the rhetoric uh, that they were using, some of the decisions that they made. And I'm up front and I, I work with a lot of uh, young men, young black men and stuff like that. I'm up front. Uh, you have a responsibility uh, as a citizen to not destroy other yeah. people's property and things. And no matter how unfair the life is and how upset you are, that does not give you the right uh, to go burn down the police station or to, uh, loot somebody else's business or things like that. And once again, I want my audience to know, and I reiterate this, everything I say as for a solution is the type of things that I say to my own sons because I love them. And I'm not into all this, you know, standing up for a cause. And, and, and I'm, I'm just not in there. I care about them as uh, because I love them. So those are the type of things that, uh, I, I think we need to talk about uh, a little bit more. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine a, a mayor saying, okay, it's okay to go down and burn down the third precinct or whatever. Uh, I can't imagine a political leaders, uh, even if they believe it, publicly stating what the outcome of a trial should be. That's not your responsibility. So I, and really what we're talking about, Rich, and uh, what I'm getting to is accountability all the way around uh, our leadership. Uh, our law enforcement officers, the community, the people, we all need to take responsibility for this. And I point out to people, I'm kind of a simple-minded person. Look, I don't know any significant issue we have with other human beings that we can solve by saying this issue will go away if only you change. If only one person do a change, this issue is going to go away. And, and, and I don't know what it's going to take before we realize that as long as our attitude is that this issue is going to go away as soon as the law enforcement change, it's not going to go away because it's just not human nature. We all need to accept uh, responsibility and accountability for this. So, Rich, I know you're busy, man. Uh, I know, uh, well, I think you went to Capitol Grill last night, so I'm not going to bring that up. And uh, you're probably going <laughs> to. You're probably going to go in there and fend for yourself tonight and throw a burger on the grill. So you have to go. But uh, is there any particular issue or thing that I, as the interviewer, was not smart enough to bring up or a question that I was not smart enough mm -hmm. to think of that uh, you would like to talk about tonight before we uh, get off the air? You know, I think you got to talk about the way forward. Right. I mean, uh -huh. your podcast is an hour. It's coming to a close. Uh, I hope you invite me back one day and we talk about the future, the future of Minneapolis, the future of the Twin Cities, the future of Minnesota. I, like a lot of people, the other five and a quarter 
million people who live in this great state are not going anywhere. I've lived here my entire life. My family, extended family live here. My kids live here. And I'm vested and invested here. And I always, like I said, I went downtown last night, got a chance to drive around. You could have literally, uh, well, in some cases, some do, fired a bullet down some of those streets and not hit a single person. There was nobody around. Uh, and that was 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. What has this, what has the city become? I mean, we just roll up the carpet and go home. That used to be like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Now it's, mm -hmm. it's just the opposite. And I had a chance to talk with the service as well. Uh, the server staff and, you know, the nice young men and women who trying to make a living working hard. And, but they asked the same question. We had a great conversation about, well, what do you, what do you see? What do you want to do? Why, why are you working here versus somewhere else? They believe in the city. They believe in people. Um, and we, we've got to figure out a better way forward. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to let the local elected officials out the hook so easy. Um, they have, if they don't respect each other, how would I expect them to respect anybody else or the people that work for them? But those police officers and firefighters work for the elected officials of the city. And it is their job to respect them and their families and the work and the service that they provide, um, just like the high quality service you expect back from them. And give them a chance, they'll do their job and they'll do it right every time. Hey, like I said, sometimes you get a bad day. You hope nothing bad comes from it, but get on with it. Uh, that's a very good point. Before we go, one thing I was intending <laughs> to ask you up front, Rich, uh, explain to our audience uh, the relationship between the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office and the individual city's uh, law enforcement agency. Where's the overlap? How do you sure. work together with them? Uh, give us a brief explanation of that, please. Well, keep in mind, you know, Hennepin County is a, is a big county, about the 34th largest county in the country. Mm -hmm. About 1.2 to 1.3 million residents, comprised of 45 different cities. Minneapolis is the largest city, Corcoran and Dayton and Rogers and Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center, Bloomington, Robbinsdale, New Hope, Plymouth, and they're all part of the county. 36 of those 45 cities have their own localized police department, which means that if they're able to provide law enforcement services, they charge your taxpayers additional property tax dollars, and they provide law enforcement service to the best of their ability. Minneapolis was virtually full service, but the sheriff's office then uh, acts as the backdrop for law enforcement across the county and helps them when they need additional help and assistance. Everybody in the county also pays property taxes to the county, which supports the sheriff's office. And there's some universal services they provide, like courts and jail and civil process. Those are things that all the cities benefit from with the sheriff's office. And there's always a, you know, there's always a good working relationship between the two. But the sheriff selected and worked for the people of the county, uh, local police departments. Uh, those chiefs of police work for their mayors and city managers, and they've got to find a balance in order to provide public safety. But like I said, for 12 years collectively across the board, 45 cities and a sheriff reduced violent crime by 38% in this county. Something's gone awry the last couple of years. I'm not sure what it is. 
And I don't know what the reason is. I don't know where the blame should go or let's not even blame anybody. Let's just get on with mm -hmm. it and fix like it mm -hmm. and get it back to where it should be. People should be safe in their own neighborhoods at schools and when they go out to eat and when they take a walk in the park, that's, that's just common sense, common decency. Yeah. By the way, uh, has any of the recent events had an impact on the number of uh, deputies and things we have for Hennepin County? Has that number decreased or is that holding steady or what's the impact has been yeah, on I the think, uh, Sheriff um, Department? You know, Sheriff Hutchinson is the uh, 28th Sheriff of the County. He's doing a, he's doing a fine job. It's not easy uh, being the Sheriff of the County and being pulled in 35 different directions from the governor to the mayor to 45 different mayors. Uh, he found out uh, real quick out in Brooklyn Center, you know, getting tangled with the mayor out there, but he deals with the mayor of Minneapolis every day. He's got to work with his other sheriffs around the metro area. There's 87 across Minnesota, 3,100 across the country. Uh, it is not an easy job. I don't uh, envy him. It was a good time for me to retire and take a step back and go, whoa. Uh, but now I get to influence public safety across this country, and I love being able to do that. And, you know, honestly, being out of it for a couple of years, you take a look back and you go, well, you know, they do a really good job over here, not so good over there. Let's spruce this up over here and provide better service. Um, that's a good position to be in, much like you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there's some other uh, issues and things uh, we're going to have a follow-up discussion on. I remember the first time I met you, we had a real good discussion on the opioid crisis and things like that. So I will get back together with you to discuss that. Uh, as we sign off, and I think we both have been consistent on this thing, uh, we need to hold ourselves and everyone else accountable. And I'll just leave with this uh, for the people out there. Uh, it's just sad uh, where uh, we've been led as a city and as a state. Uh, Minneapolis used to be that shining light on the hills. And I'm like you, when I drive through downtown, it's like a ghost town. And I used to see that in other large cities. I mean, a lot of large cities in this country, uh, after work, it, they, they just shut down. I was always proud that Minneapolis was more like New York or places like that where there's a lot of hustle and bustle. We got all three of our major sports stadium arenas in downtown. So I'm a big fan of downtown. And where I'm getting to is this, look, look voters. Uh, well, we have to hold these people accountable. And the way you hold political leadership accountable is not electing them again. And this group in here, I want people to please look at how you, we've been voting, the trend in our politics, and the trend in the well-being of the state, the trend in the well-being of the city, the trend in the well-being of this county and the congressional district and everything. Because I say to you, there is a connection and that the only way you're going to hold people accountable, I don't think any of these people should get reelected, to be honest with you. And I'm just being honest with you. I mean, none of them should. Governor, mayor, congressman, none of them should be for what they've done to our cities. But I'm going to leave that to the voters. I'm going to respect their choices. But remember, as long as you keep electing these people and not holding them accountable, you're going to keep getting the same thing. So anyway, thank you, Rich. Thank you to my audience. Uh, I'm open to any ideas you have, any criticism. Uh, one thing I want to know, if somebody can tell me this, and I'll leave it with this, tell me the goal of police reform 
uh, and spell it out to me so I can understand it and so I know what we're working towards because this thing where nobody on arm is going to get killed, I don't think that's a realistic goal that we're going to shoot for. Uh, I think there's over 700,000 police officers in this country with weapons. And I tell everybody, if you got a loaded weapon by yourself, there's a danger of someone getting hurt. And so we need to keep that in mind. So thank you, Rich. I'm going to have you for a follow-up. Uh, you're here locally. And I'm going to talk you into having a cup of coffee. Uh, we're going to have a cup of coffee together. And at that coffee get-together or whatever, we might even plan to go to Capitol Grill or someplace like that. Uh, so thank you once again. Uh, thank you like for all that. the work you've done before. And keep up the good work. And let's keep working this thing. And let's keep loving Minnesota and trying to make it a better place for everybody to live, especially here in my community, North Minneapolis. Thanks, Rich. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Tell your listeners, keep the faith. It can only get better. Oh, yeah. We, we, we're going to make it better. We haven't given up. Uh, I'm very positive. Thanks very much. Good.